to that he wrote to the church in Ephesus, Ephesians. Um, and while I was gone the past two Sundays, um, Corey, uh, Corey Pelton kept that series going, and he got us all the way to Ephesians chapter 5. Um, so it, that's where we are this morning. If you want to turn there in your Bibles or turn there in your bulletin, I'm going to read that for us. It's Ephesians 5 verses 1 through 21, and it's a packed section of verses, uh, but in them, in these verses, I want us to see how the new life we have in Jesus, if we have it, um, is meant to really completely transform our lives. Um, So that's kind of what I want us to talk about this morning. Uh, So let me read the passage, and then I'll pray for us before we talk. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 21. Paul writes, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's go before him now and ask for his help. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, um, our chief prayer this morning since we began is that you would be with us. Um, And so we pray that you would pour out your spirit in order that we would understand your word, in order that it would be applied to our lives, in order that we would be encouraged in all you have done for us in Christ um, and encouraged to walk after him. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Um, some of you may remember this, uh, this passage, but Jesus, he once said, he said, no one pours new wine 
into old wineskins. Because if he does, the wine will burst the skins. And both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, he pours new wine into new wineskins. Um, so you put new wine into new wineskins so that during the fermentation process, uh, as, the, as it's making the alcohol, it can, the skins themselves can expand and they don't break. Um, now, of course, Jesus' interest wasn't so much on, um, on the science of fermentation, right? He, he's, making, he's creating a metaphor for us. Um, and I can't go into it in great detail here, but Jesus was saying uh, in that statement, uh, among other things, this is what he was saying. He was saying, I'm a revolutionary. Right? He's saying, if you try to contain me in the old ceremonies, in the old forms and traditions, I'm going to burst right through them and destroy them, right? I mean, you think about this. Just think about revolutionaries in general. What do revolutionaries want to do and accomplish? I mean, they're not interested in small changes. They're not interested in tweaking policies here and there, right? No, revolutionaries want to overthrow the old system. They want to capsize the old establishment, They want to turn it all upside down and change absolutely everything. Now, stay with me just a moment longer and think about this. If that's true, if Jesus was a revolutionary, and if he came to overthrow the old order and change everything, then we ought to expect the gospel to transform everything about our lives. C.S. Lewis once uh, famously wrote that Jesus didn't come into this world merely to improve us. Right? God became man, Lewis wrote, to turn creatures into sons. Not to simply produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. See, he didn't come to tweak a few of your habits. He didn't come to make you a little nicer and cleaner version of the old you. He came to overthrow the old you and transform every area of your life. And and that's really what chapters 4, 5, and 6 of Ephesians are all about. We've said it a few times throughout the the series, but the theme of Ephesians, I think, is that new life from God it necessarily leads to a transformed life with and before God. And so I want to see this morning how this new life brings us three things. One, a new obedience. Two, a new walk. And three, a new joy. A new obedience, a new walk, and a new joy. So first, a new, a new obedience. That's hard to say, a new obedience. Um, and I can't even turn this piece of paper. I'm struggling. Ah, there we go. Um, new obedience. So I, I don't know. I don't know what your thoughts or impressions uh, of this might be, but I think that we are very often afraid in the church to talk about obedience. Um, and my guess is we're 
we're scared because we don't want to be legalistic. So we shy away from really talking about obedience. Um, But I want you to think about something. Here's the Apostle Paul, who's often called the Apostle of Grace. And he has absolutely no problem telling us here in these verses that God expects obedience from his people. Um, Why is that? Here's some grammar for you. Um, The word therefore in verse 1 is what's called a resumptive inferential conjunction. I read it in a book somewhere. Um, But what it means is Paul was saying in that word therefore something along the lines of this. He was saying in light of everything I've written up until this point, this then is how you should live, right? See, for Paul, the order is everything, right? And in chapters one through three and even into chapter four, Paul has been telling us that God has moved towards us in Jesus, that he has rescued us through Jesus, that he has brought new life to us entirely by his grace. He has given us an unshakable and untouchable identity in Jesus, and he has brought us into his family as his dearly loved children. See, he's saying, in light of God's incredible, unconditional love for you, In light of your new identity in Jesus, in light of God's making you a new creation in his grace, this then is how you should live. The order is everything. Right? We don't obey and therefore become Christians. We become Christians and therefore, Paul says, we obey. Right? That's how the apostle of grace can have no problem talking about obedience. He's really saying, you are a new person because of grace. Therefore, you are now free to walk, at, walk in and live out a new obedience in Jesus. And this new obedience that Paul is writing about, it is both comprehensive and incredibly deep. So it's comprehensive. Paul mentioned sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness. He mentioned those three things verbatim twice in verse 3 and in verse 5. And Listen, there is a tendency in all of us to elevate parts of God's law over and against other parts of God's law. And nowhere is this more evident than when it comes to our views of sex and money. Um, author, preacher Tim Keller in particular, I think, has made some very helpful observations about this. And, and by the way, you see this all throughout our culture. Um, you see this particularly in politics, yes, but you also see it played out in our churches. Um, you know, on the one hand, there's a tendency of some to say the Bible's views of sexuality are uh, antiquated and, and obsolete, What a person does with their sexuality is private. But what the Bible says about the dangerous, um, uh, corrupting power of greed is is what's most important. But then on the other hand, there's a tendency for others to say, "No, no one has the right to talk to me about my money. That's private, right? But what the Bible says about sexuality is the most important thing. 
But Paul was saying this new obedience, by taking these two things, sex and money, he is saying this new obedience is totally comprehensive. It's about every area of your life being brought into obedience to Jesus. Obedience to the entire scope of God's law. But it's not just comprehensive. This new obedience that Paul is talking about is also deep. Because when Paul talks about covetousness in particular, which he says in this passage in verse 5 is idolatry, um, he's saying this new obedience isn't just about your external behaviors. right? Because coveting or being greedy is done internally in your heart. It has to do with our desires, Paul is saying, with our motivations, with our loves in this life. Because you see, Paul, I think, is making this point that Jesus is, in fact, a revolutionary king. And he demands comprehensive obedience from his people in every area of your life. And he wants more than external behaviors and obedience, but he wants deep obedience in your heart, transformation that is from the inside out. Um, one of my favorite songs is several years old, but um, the band U2 and Johnny Cash got together and they did a song called The Wanderer. Um, I don't know if anybody's ever heard it before, but there's this great line in that song where Johnny Cash sings, I stopped outside a church house where the citizens like to sit. They say they want the kingdom, but they don't want God in it. You hear what he's saying? He's saying they want the blessings of the kingdom. They want all the benefits of the kingdom, you might say. They want forgiveness and peace and assurance and eternal security and success and all, all this kind of stuff. But Cash is singing, yeah, they want the kingdom, but they just don't want the king of the kingdom. Right? Because to get the king of the kingdom is for you and I to lose control of our lives. It's to take our hands off of our lives and say, your will, not my will be done. In every area of my life, inside and out. Paul wrote in the first verse of this passage that we read, therefore be imitators of God, right? Be like God. Do the kinds of things God does. Love the kinds of things he loves. Hate the kind of things he hates. But Paul never divorces this new comprehensive deep obedience from our identity and grace. The same verse. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Right? You are sons and daughters of the king. So live in a manner consistent with your identity. Take your hands off of your life. Give up your control and embrace this new obedience. So we've got to move on, but just let me ask you just briefly how you're doing with this. Right? Are there parts of your life that you are trying to keep away from Jesus? He's king over everything. Are you paying attention to not just the external behaviors and obedience in your life, but also your desires and the, and, and the motives of your heart and your loves? If you're trusting in Jesus, you are a child of the king, and you're called to live 
in a manner consistent with your identity as a son or daughter of the king. All right, second, let's talk about a new walk. The word walk shows up three times, almost evenly interspersed uh, throughout these verses. It's in verse 2, it's in verse 8, it's in verse 15. Walk in love, he says. Walk as children of light, he says. Walk not as unwise, but as wise. You know, we just talked about obedience to God's law, but what about the other 80% of life where the moral law of God doesn't apply? And you're just living life, right? Verses 8, 9, and 10, look there. Paul wrote at the end of verse 8, Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to, dis- to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. How do you walk and discern what is good and right and pleasing to the Lord when there isn't a rule for you to follow? When you're making decisions about where to live, about what job you should take, about who you should date, about who you should marry, about how you should spend your financial resources, right? about where you should send your kids to school, about uh, how you use uh, your limited time that's given to you. And since I mentioned time, look down at verse 15 through 17. He says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand, he says, what the will of the Lord is. Making decisions and learning to understand the will of the Lord when there isn't a rule or a law to follow. So Paul is talking about wisdom. And the dominant metaphor throughout the Bible, when the Bible's talking about wisdom, is walking. Walking step by step, one foot in front of the other, down a path. Proverbs 3, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will what? And he will make your path straight. Psalm 119, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Job 23, my foot has held fast to his steps. I have kept his way and have not turned aside. On and on we go, walking, step by step on a path on the way. That's how you grow in wisdom. Right, learning how to walk down a path, moving step by step on a particular line, moving somewhere on a particular trajectory. See, Paul understands that when you receive this new identity as a child of the king through the gospel, that the gospel puts you on a certain trajectory. There are no shortcuts. There's no leaping or jumping down the path. It's walking in a line, in a particular line that makes you wise. Philosopher uh, Cornelius Plantiga, he defines wisdom this way. He says, it's a knowledge of God's world and a knack for fitting oneself into it. A knowledge of God's world and a knack for fitting oneself into it. Step by step, following the path, the trajectory, you grow in the knowledge of God's world and develop a knack for fitting yourself into it. So you start to become a wise person. 
right, as you're on this path. You start to become a person who makes wise decisions about job and family and friendships and all those kind of things. Um, let me try to illustrate this a little bit. Some of you, some of you know that um, my dad's career was in the Air Force, and um, his area of expertise was in missiles. So during the Cold War, his career had a lot to do with nuclear weapons. But after the Cold War, it shifted into launching satellites into space. Um, And at one point, my dad was the wing commander of our our country's uh, primary satellite base, which is outside of Colorado Springs. And I went with him to work one day, and he led me through these hallways, and we went through a series of these you know, big vault-like, two-foot-thick steel doors, and we got inside, and we eventually got into the nerve center of that base, I guess. And, um, And inside this big room, there was another room that was completely sealed off, um, and it was just full of computers that were all dedicated to running this digital clock in that room. And um, so that it kept perfect time. And I remember asking my dad about that. And he told me that the clock was extremely important because they were, they were launching these satellites, you know, thousands of miles up into space. And they were trying to put them into very specific orbits. So you had to make all these very, very precise calculations so the missile would stay on this precise path on this very particular trajectory to get into that very specific and particular orbit. So if they weren't in perfect synchronization with that clock, they would miss the line, and they would miss the trajectory. You know, when you first launch a missile, um, and that is one cool thing I've done, I've seen some missiles launch, but it might not initially appear to be that big of a deal. You might not even know you're off Uh, the path, or the trajectory. But to miss that trajectory by like a second or two seconds is to miss your orbit by hundreds and hundreds of miles in space. It's to wind up in a completely different place. Listen, there's this famous place, I'm trying to pull this together, there's this famous place in Paul's letter to the Galatians. It's the book that comes right before Ephesians. And another one of the apostles, Peter, had started acting like a racist. Right? He wouldn't eat with the Gentiles. And he wouldn't fellowship with the Gentiles. And Paul confronted Peter. And he told them that he wasn't walking in step or in line with the truth of the gospel. Right? Paul was saying... You missed the trajectory. You got off the path. And you wound up hundreds of miles off course. That you could treat other people this way. Paul didn't appeal to a law. He said, Peter, think about the trajectory of the gospel. He said, Peter, consider the love of God for you. In Jesus, right? He was saying, Peter, remember the gospel. God doesn't love you because you're a Jew or because you keep all of these ceremonies. He loves you just because he loves you. 
And he loves you because of what Jesus has done and accomplished for you. And so he's saying, if you trace that line, and if you follow that path, that trajectory, guess what it does? It kills your racism. It kills your pride. And it fills you with love for others. So what does this mean for us? It means we have to, we've got to saturate ourselves with the gospel. We have got to become conversant in the gospel. We have to learn how to preach the gospel to ourselves day in and day out, moment by moment. So that step by step we're walking in this gospel trajectory. And we begin to make decisions about all of life that are in sync with the gospel. Let me say one more just brief thing here and then we'll move on to the last point. This gospel line, this gospel path, to follow it, Paul is saying, makes you more loving and more holy at the same time. Right? It pulls you into a trajectory, he's saying, of love and holiness simultaneously. We've all thought, I have thought it so many times, it's not even funny. I don't like holy people is what I think, right? Because they're the rigid, arrogant, judgmental people. Yeah, because we have often seen holiness without love. But Paul is saying, to be in step with the gospel, to walk the gospel line and trajectory, is to be pulled into a life of absolute beauty where holiness and love are functioning simultaneously. Where holiness, verse 9, what is good and right and true and love, verse 2, walking in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Where those two things, love and holiness, are friends. Where holiness and love, they hold hands and they embrace. And if I could tell you something, that kind of life... That's attractive to anybody who comes in contact with it. Believer or unbeliever. Because the only thing to account for a person walking in holiness and grace, holiness and love at the same time, it it has to be otherworldly. All right, finally, a a new joy. Okay, I'm going to try to pull some of this stuff together. New obedience, a new walk, and finally a new joy. Several years ago, I I was reading through some sermons by uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones on that he did on Genesis. Um, he was a preacher in London in the early mid to mid-1900s. And in one of those sermons, he argued that all of humanity um, goes through life with what he called a memory trace. A memory trace. L- listen to what he said. We are all conscious of a sense, a memory, a recollection of having lost something. We are ever trying to recapture something that we know we once possessed. And I think you know this. There is a deep restlessness in all of humanity. Um, We instinctively know we're made for something bigger. We're made for something better. We're made for something greater. We feel it in our bones. We know that we were made 
for fulfillment and satisfaction and wholeness and happiness and joy. Right? One more quote from Lloyd-Jones. He writes, We have an innate feeling that we were meant for something bigger and higher. There is in every one of us a recollection, a memory of what we once were. And though we have lost this, and though we have never known it, a memory lingers. And here's why I bring, bring all of this up. We all instinctively know we were meant to experience fulfilling, abiding, deep joy. We were made for that. True and real, deep happiness. We are so hungry for it. And we are often chasing it in all the wrong places. And we could talk about what all those wrong places are, but I think you probably have an idea what most of them are. But I mentioned this, I mentioned this several weeks ago. Come back to Ephesians with me now. I, I don't know how many times I've read Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18 in the past. Plenty of times, I'm, I'm sure. And I, usually, I used to just read through it very quickly because I just wanted to get past it onto something else. Um, it, there's some shame involved in that, all that stuff. But I, I used to read it like this. Don't get drunk on wine, but be spiritual instead. Basically, don't get drunk on wine, be good. <laughs> right? Be better than you are. But think through what Paul is doing in this verse. Um, James Montgomery Boyce, he, he wrote, Paul is contrasting two things, being filled with the Spirit and being drunk on wine, right? And you probably remember this from an old uh, high school science class, that wine or alcohol is technically considered a, a, a depressant, right? So if wine or alcohol is, is a depressant, how is it that a whole lot of it can make you feel so happy and so carefree and so light easily. It completely deadens your senses, right? It deadens your awareness of the reality of your life. It's an escape from reality, and so you become less aware of your problems, and therefore your inhibitions come down. Right? It blocks out your insecurities, your pain, whatever, and it numbs your awareness of reality. And that's how a depressant like wine can make us feel happy. And by the way, this is another discussion. I'm not saying drinking wine or alcohol is sinful. Um, it is another discussion, but we're talking about being drunk, right? So why would Paul contrast being drunk on wine to being filled with the Spirit? Because he's saying there's another kind of happiness and joy. One that comes not, not as a result of making you less aware of reality, but by making you more aware of reality. Because the Spirit's primary job is, as J.I. Packer put it, is to cast the floodlight upon Jesus and his glory and what he has done and what he has accomplished. The Spirit works to make you more aware of the reality of God's immeasurable, unfathomable love for you and delight in you in Jesus. 
You know what the Spirit does? The Spirit makes you aware of the reality that God's own Son came into this world and His life was a life of supreme beauty. And He perfectly obeyed and fulfilled every law of God, internally and externally, and He did it for you. And when the perfectly obedient God-man was hung upon the cross, holiness and love collided and embraced there for you. Right, God's perfect holy justice was satisfied when Jesus died for all of your sins and mine. And simultaneously, God's perfect love for you was also satisfied at the cross. And you were made on this kind of scale to know and experience the love of the Almighty God shed abroad in your heart. You were made on that scale to know and experience the joy of being God's dearly loved child. And here's what Paul says. When you're filled with the Spirit, when the Spirit makes you aware of the reality that you are loved and accepted and adored by the King of Kings, verse 19 he says, it's going to start spilling out of your life everywhere. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I I think you know this. When you see yourself as the recipient of grace, it can't help but spill out and onto others. Last week, or, or the week before this last one, uh, family went, Mardi Gras break, we went to um, the beach in Florida, and for most nights that week for supper, we were doing like spaghetti, frozen pizzas, whatever, because we decided we're going to go out to eat one night, and we're going to save up so that we can all go out, we're just going to have this great time, you know, we're going to bl- blow all our money doing that. So, um so that night came, and we drove to this uh, nice, re- I can't even remember the name of it, uh, but it was in Seaside, this nice restaurant, and we did several appetizers. You know, we were doing oysters and crab claws, and everybody ordered exactly what they wanted off the menu, and it was incredible, and it was great, and it was, we were all full and fat and happy and ready to go home and, and you know, uh, lay on the couch. Where it was awesome. Um, and so when we were all done, our waitress, uh, brought us our check and she said, the check's only going to be something like $5. And, um, and she explained that this couple that we had met while we were in the, like the waiting area to get our seats, right? They paid our bill for us and it was awesome, right? Um, there was just one drink that we had ordered after they left that I still had to pay for, which was $5. Um, I don't know why they did it. I have no idea. Um, maybe we made some small connections. I don't, we didn't even exchange names. Maybe they just looked at Jennifer and I, and, were like, and they saw our four children who were hungry, and they're like, we feel sorry for them. I don't know what the reason was. Um, but whatever it was, it was incredibly generous and incredibly gracious. Because like I said, we were there to spend as much money as we could on that meal. And we had a lot, and we ate a lot, right? I don't know 
no idea, right, who that couple was. But I know this. When you see yourself as a recipient of grace, it can't. the only right and appropriate response is that it would spill out of your life, right? So my, our waitress got the biggest tip she, she may have ever gotten because we just said we had all this money. We're just going to give it all to her, right? I mean, that is the right and appropriate thing to do. And that's what Paul is talking about here in these closing verses. When you find this new joy for which you were made, it, it moves you out. It moves us out. It spills out towards others, towards your friend, towards your spouse, towards your children, towards, towards your, uh, your co-workers, towards the people in your neighborhood, towards your brothers and sisters in Christ. God has given us new life. In his son, and that new life, Paul is telling us, leads to a new obedience, a new walk, and a new joy. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel that we are reminded of every time we open your word. Um, We thank you for the identity that we have in Jesus and our, and that we can be called your beloved children. Um, and Father, we pray that you would move us out, that you would empower us uh, by your spirit, um, by the good news of the gospel in order that we might become a people who are marked by a new obedience um, and a new walking in wisdom and a new joy um, because of what Christ has done for us. Father, we pray that you would do this ultimately for your glory in the world, uh, but certainly for our good. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.